Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. We all know about photosynthesis, but what happens when you have too much light powering that equation? Now light is really, really important for plants, and most plants need that to survive. And I say most plants because we'll talk a little bit about some strange ones that don't need light at all. But the way photosynthesis is managed, dealing with too much light or too little light, is incredibly complex and important for plants. This week we talk about light and plants and their need for it. If you've taken some time to garden, you will know that of course plants need key things in order to flourish. They need water in the right amounts, not too much and not too little, they need, of course, lots of CO2 and good soil that's healthy. But the most important part for plants or things that photosynthesize is, of course, light. Because without the other ingredients, the fuel and the light to kickstart and provide the energy, well, photosynthesis just won't occur. And this is important because light isn't just a static thing. Light changes immensely throughout the day. It's not just a constant. Different times of the year have different amounts of light. They also have different angles of light. The angle of light changes in the day as well. All of these are due to the fact that the sun is moving relative to the earth in a different position. The earth is tilting in a certain way, which changes the way the sun hits you. Now, if you are planted in one spot of the earth and move to another spot on the earth, actually as well, the angle of the sun can change too. These are all things that can affect the type of light you receive, but on a macro scale. On a much smaller scale, there are plenty of other things that can influence the light that you see, if you're a plant or just a human out in a park. Things like cloud cover. As you see a cloud move in front of the sun, a thick cloud, a thin cloud, a high cloud, or a low cloud, they will all change the relative intensity you feel of the sunlight at that point in time. Now, that is one very important factor too. But of course, there are other things that can obscure how light may enter the leaves of a plant. If your plant's leaves are covered in a thick grain of dust, well, of course, this will diffuse the light even more, in the same way that dust on a solar panel can reduce its effectiveness. These are all things that can impact the way a plant may photosynthesize. It doesn't receive the same amount of energy. And of course, the plant itself can be a huge factor too. If it's windy, or it's moving, all of a sudden, plants can get shaded in one part of it by other leaves around it, thus blocking more of that sun. So an individual leaf trying to photosynthesize has to deal with all of these potential changes in the amount of light that will bounce and hit that leaf. This is one of the big challenges of photosynthesis, is reacting to the amount of light available, because that amount of light will change dramatically minute to minute, hour to hour, day or week or month to season. All of those have to be taken into account. And the rate of change of that light can sometimes be incredibly rapid. So how do leaves manage to respond so rapidly to changing light conditions and get the most out of that sunlight? Because after all, photosynthesis is a balanced equation. And if you have too much light, well, it throws everything else out of balance, just like having too little. So maintaining a stable supply of light throughout the day is a really, really tricky business. That's something that researchers from the Max Planck Institute of Molecular Plant Physiology in Potsdam Gong and the College of Natural Science at Michigan State University have recently published in the journal New Phytologist. Now, the lead author in this paper was Tekla von Bismarck, along with a list of collaborators from both universities as mentioned. 
and they were investigating the genes that are in play, along with the proteins, that help leaves respond reactively to the changing light conditions around it, to shed some light on the dynamics happening inside of plants as they manage this photosynthesis reaction. Now I mentioned earlier how too much sunlight can be a problem for plants, and this is very similar for us humans. When you have your, say, retina, your eyes, and you go from somewhere that's very dark to somewhere that's very bright, well, of course, it hurts and you can't see really well because your eyes adjust to the low amount of light and they let more light in to improve their visibility in low light conditions. If you suddenly enter a high light condition, well, then they freak out and oversaturate. It can hurt in the most extreme of cases. And plants actually do more or less the same thing using molecules in their leaves to capture the light particles. Now, this is a pretty spectacular thing. When the light is low, these light traps, these molecules, are efficient as catching as much of the low light as possible to boost up that photosynthesis reaction. And they're very efficient in this low light condition. But all of a sudden, if you have a lot of light, then you might end up with an oversaturated amount of energy pumping into that leaf. This can pretty much damage the photosynthetic apparatus inside the plant's cells, which means that the plant is at risk of actually damaging themselves by having too much light, especially if it's all of a sudden. So the plant has to be able to manage and, and control this photosynthetic activity depending on what we call environmental conditions around it to maintain the maximum amount of light yield and one way to put it. But another way is actually just being efficient about it, the same ways that our eyes do, making the most of the available resource, light in this particular case. Now, when we think about plants in a laboratory setting, we're normally growing them in a greenhouse or a laboratory where they have really stable and uniform light conditions. That's not natural in any sense of the word because, well, natural light is really weird and variable and very difficult to simulate. In some cases, that means that we are missing things when we try and study how plants react to light. In other cases, it's really useful because we can learn a lot about the plants. When it comes to studying photosynthesis and the way in which plants manage the work of photosynthesis, then the laboratory conditions aren't ideal. So the researchers turned to the Arabidopsis thalinea for their study. And these plants were grown in a wide variety of conditions, including static, fluctuating, and natural light. And what they were looking at were two proteins, two ion transport proteins called VCCN and KEA3. Now, they play a key role in dynamically adjusting the photosynthetic performance in the leaves. Now, researchers know from earlier studies that VCCN1 activates the sunlight protection mechanisms. If sunlight becomes too strong, this protein kicks in, and when the light intensity decreases, the second protein, KA3, breaks down that sun protection, gets rid of the VCCN1 to enable the photosynthesis to still work. So these two proteins work as a combined system. The problem is, they've actually never been studied in realistic light conditions prior to this paper. So we know that they do these functions, but we don't know actually how it really happens. So to measure the photosynthesis reaction in combination with targeted use of gene knockout techniques, the researchers were able to selectively switch off VCCN1 and KA3 and understand what happens to the plants when these proteins are not present by switching off the genes that produce them. And then the 
plants raised in these different combinations were then put into a control group, a static light, as well as natural light and a fluctuating variable light source to give the researchers the ability to really see what happens when these proteins are there or not there in different combinations. And what the researchers saw is that the amount of light coming to a plant, along with the frequency of the light fluctuations, how much it's changing, actually has a big influence on the work of these proteins, these two ion transporters. The VCSM1 is only important in plants that have been previously grown under low light. The protective mechanism that it has keeps plants who are used to low light safe in changing light conditions. So in other words, the relationship and the work of these two plants, VCSM1 and KA3, depend on the prior history of where these plants have been raised. The activity of these proteins really depend on the light conditions the plants were raised in, their environment around them and the way in which they've grown. The VCCM1 function, its protection, it's only really important in plants that have grown up in low light modes. And even if KA3 comes in and abolishes that light, low light protection in high light periods, even plants that were grown in normally high light conditions, they still have that KA3 coming in. And often when light conditions change significantly, plants will produce an orange pigment called zeaxanthin, which can involve like as a sunscreen for the plant to protect the leaves. But the protection of this sunscreen is actually suppressed by the protein KA3 under high light conditions as well. So our studies show that you can see the way these two protein and the genes that produce them are involved in regulating the performance of photosynthesis. And they actually work not only with the protection mechanisms inside the plant, like sunscreen mechanisms, but they really depend on the history of that plant and how it's been grown. Because it's how the plant is trying to manage based on its learned experience of the world. If you grow a plant in a certain way, it gets used to a certain surroundings and its genes will respond accordingly, having protection on or off as a result. And that's one of the complicated things about light. The plant has to make its best guess about what it needs to survive in the world. And you can only really see all these smart decisions that the plant system is making by studying them in detail with the selective gene editing techniques. There's some great research done at the Max Planck Institute, along with others, published in the journal New Phytologist, lead author Decla von Bismarck. spent a long time talking about photosynthesis and it's a good assumption to make that all plants have to have leaves and photosynthesis they just essential characteristics of plants but the thing is it's not quite true like with many things in science there are often very odd and unusual exceptions to the rules like say the monitoring in this case we're talking about a plant that has just basically flat out stopped performing photosynthesis this is weird enough itself, but a new paper published in the Journal of Plant Research with lead author Kenji Tsutsugu from Kobe University and others have been exploring an even stranger plant, one that has a complicated relationship with mushrooms and a ghostly appearance, but also a very strange and uniquely distinct cousin. Now, the researching were diving into a plant called Monotropastrum humile. And this is a really weird and ghostly looking plant. It's not a tall tree, it's quite small. And it is white or silvery. And it looks literally like a ghost bell type flower. 
very, very strange, pale and white, looking like a ghost in many cases, and it's found scattered across South and East Asia. And it grows in woodlands where there's little to no light. Now, this ghostly white-looking thing you might actually mistake for being a fungi, but that's not quite true. It is a mysocerotrophic plant, one that actually consumes and eats the hyphae of fungi. That's its food source, rather than photosynthesis. Now, in low-light conditions, extremely low-light conditions, eating fungi is a way better bet because it's often way more abundant than light itself. So that's what the plants adapted themselves to do. And despite its wide distribution, it used to be believed there was only one species of this plant existing in the entire world. Now, researchers like Professor Setsugi Kenji and others working together with him have discovered a really strange new variant in Japan that not only is a variant of it, but it's actually really a new species. Perhaps a whole new genus of really strange-looking plants. Now, this cousin of the Monostratosum humile is actually named after the region where it's found, in the Kurishima in the Kagoshima prefecture in Japan. So it's Monotropastrum kurishimisense. And it's basically got a rosy red-pink petals and stems that resemble like a milk glass. Now, if the original one is a ghost-like, this is more like a beautiful pinkish glass. It's really strange and hauntingly beautiful, these two plants in combination. But knowing if they are one species or separate ones is a complicated question. You know, you can end up with colour variations between plants all the time. We do that in flowers all the time. But what actually makes the line between a variant and a new species involves a lot of research, in this case, 20 years of study across Japan, Taiwan and Vietnam. Now, what they saw was several morphological differences, including the following. If you look at the way the Kurishimense flowers and ovaries are compared to the Humile, the Kurishime ones are more rounded. So it has a different shape than the, the other flower. It has different root structures. Its root ball is more obscured by the surrounding soil and contrasts to Humile's protruding root tips. The Kurishimense Individuals are shorter above the ground, so they're only around 5 centimeters tall, and longer, way longer, below the ground, over 10 centimeters. Their flowering season is different too. The Humile flowers bloom approximately 40 days earlier, and the two plant species have the same primary pollinator, the bumblebee, Bombus diverus. The differing flowering times can actually end up with really specific pollen deposition patterns. One of the things that means is you can't actually get these two plants to breed together. Now, add all those things up. That's you know, a very good conclusion to say this has pretty much evolved into a separate species. You cannot have cross-species breeding. <laughs> they can't interact. They have different shape. They have different breeding cycles and patterns. And they have a different structure. All of these things add up to very clearly a different species, not just a color variant, though they are closely related. So why did they split apart? They were once very similar, but now one of them has evolved into entirely a separate species. Now the thing is, in these kind of low-light conditions, you may end up with a really specialised diet. If you then eat only on a certain type of fungi, 
instead of like. Because we're talking about something that eats food here, much like other animals eat food, the diet can change the shape or the size of the creature. Island gigantism is a case of this, or island dwarfism, where a creature gets so adapted to its particular environment, it either gets really big or really small, depending on its availability of food sources. And in this case, it might have had a changing in the size or the behavior of this plant based on its food source, not light, but fungi. If it ate a different fungi and ate it for a very long time, well, actually, it would change the way in which the plant works. This will give it some specialization in feeding on that different fungi and eventually leading to that reproductive isolation. This is a process known often as resource partitioning, and it's one of the ways actually you can see species separating from each other from a common ancestor. One gets a specialization in one food source, another specializes in another food source. We only have to look at the Galapagos finches to see the case of the big formation as being a really good example of that. Now, they all evolved from the same phylogenetic tree, the family tree of evolutionary history of a group of organisms and plants. But then these monodropastrums diverged pretty radically from each other with different flowering patterns based on their evolutionary history. So this suggests that this distinct species of plants in this monodropastrum genus is pretty amazing because these mycosotrophic plants are very vulnerable to extinction. And one of the reasons is that they don't just rely on light, something widely available all over the planet Earth. They rely on a specific food source, a certain type of fungi. Now, if something comes into this forest and disrupts that available source of fungi, then these plants will not survive. And if you want to plant and build a garden of one of these things, well, you actually need to make sure you have that fungi available. And that fungi may not grow in that region. If you use a different fungi, then you may end up with the same separating out of creating a new genus of these plants, just like happened in the past in this monotrospastrum family. So this is a really interesting example of how plants can evolve into really, really weird ways, given the right environmental conditions. These plants look beautiful and haunting, but don't consume light, they rather rely on fungi. And which fungi they eat is also really important to the formation of this species and how it can evolve over time. Some great research published in the Journal of Plant Research about plants that don't eat light, but rather fungi, and how they can evolve and change over time. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. This week we talked about the way plants regulate the amount of light they receive to keep themselves safe in changing light conditions, and plants that just abandon light altogether and rely on eating fungi instead. Our ending theme was composed by Audio and Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.